Chapter Six of In Search of the Unknown by Robert W. Chambers. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Peter Eastman. Chapter Six. Before I proceed any further, common decency requires me to reassure my readers concerning my intentions, which heaven knows are far from flippant. To separate fact from fancy has always been difficult for me, but now that I have had the honour to be chosen secretary of the zoological gardens in Bronx Park, I realise keenly that unless I give up writing fiction, nobody will believe what I write about science. Therefore it is to a serious and unimaginative public that I shall hereafter address myself, and I do it in the modest confidence that I shall neither be distrusted nor doubted, although unfortunately I still write in that irrational style which suggests covert frivolity, and for which I am undergoing a course of treatment in English literature at Columbia College. Now, having promised to avoid originality and confine myself to facts, I shall tell what I have to tell concerning the ding, the mammoth, and something else. For some weeks it had been rumoured that Professor Farrago, president of the Bronx Park Zoological Society, would resign to accept an enormous salary as manager of Barnum and Bailey's Circus. He was now with the circus in London, and had promised to cable his decision before the day was over. I hoped he would decide to remain with us. I was his secretary and particular favourite and I viewed, without enthusiasm, the advent of a new president, who might shake us all out of our congenial and carefully excavated ruts. However, it was plain that the trustees of the society expected the resignation of Professor Farrago, for they had been in secret session all day, considering the names of possible candidates to fill Professor Farrago's large, old-fashioned shoes. These preparations worried me, for I could scarcely expect another chief as kind and considerate as Professor Leonidas Farrago. That afternoon in June I left my office in the administration building in Bronx Park and strolled out under the trees for a breath of air. But the heat of the sun soon drove me to seek shelter under a little square arbor a shady retreat covered with purple wisteria and honeysuckle. As I entered the arbor, I noticed that there were three other people seated there, an elderly lady with masculine features and short hair, a younger lady sitting beside her, and farther away a rough-looking young man reading a book. For a moment I had an indistinct impression of having met the elder lady somewhere and under circumstances not entirely agreeable. But beyond a stony and indifferent glance, she paid no attention to me. As for the younger lady, she did not look at me at all. She was very young, with pretty eyes, a mass of silky brown hair, and a skin as fresh as a rose which had just been rained on. With that delicacy peculiar to lonely scientific bachelors, I modestly sat down beside the rough young man, although there was more room beside the younger lady. 
Some lazy loafer reading a penny dreadful, I thought, glancing at him, then at the title of his book. Hearing me beside him, he turned around and blinked over his shabby shoulder, and the movement uncovered the page he had been silently conning. The volume in his hands was Darwin's famous monograph on the monodactyl. He noticed the astonishment on my face and smiled uneasily, shifting the short clay pipe in his mouth. "'I guess,' he observed, "'that this here book is too much for me, mister.' "'It's rather technical,' I replied, smiling. "'Yes,' he said in vague admiration. "'It's fierce, ain't it?' After a silence, I asked him if he would tell me why he had chosen Darwin as a literary pastime. "'Well,' he said placidly, "'I was trying to read about animals, but I'm up against a word-slinger this time all right. Now here's a gum-twister.' and he painfully spelled out M-O-N-O-D-A-C-T-Y-L, breathing hard all the while. Monodactyl, I said, means a single-toed creature. He turned the page with alacrity. Is that the beast he's talking about? he asked. The illustration he pointed out was a woodcut representing Darwin's reconstruction of the ding from the fossil bones in the British Museum. It was a well-executed woodcut, showing a ding in the foreground, and to give scale, a mammoth in the middle distance. Yes, I replied, that is the ding. I've seen one, he observed calmly. I smiled and explained that the ding had been extinct for some thousands of years. "'Oh, I guess not,' he replied, with cool optimism. Then he placed a grimy forefinger on the mammoth. "'I've seen them things, too,' he remarked. Again I patiently pointed out his error, and suggested that he referred to the elephant. "'Elephant be blowed!' he replied scornfully. I guess I know what I seen, and I seen that there thing you call a ding, too. Not wishing to prolong a futile discussion, I remained silent. After a moment he wheeled around, removing his pipe from his hard mouth. Did you ever hear tell of Graham's Glacier? he demanded. Certainly, I replied, astonished. It's the southernmost glacier in British America. Right, he said, and did you ever hear tell of the Hudson Mountings, mister? Yes, I replied. What's behind him? he snapped out. Nobody knows, I answered. They are considered impassable. They ain't, though, he said doggedly. I've been behind em. Really, I replied, tiring of his yarn. Yes, really, he repeated sullenly. Then he began to fumble and search through the pages of his book until he found what he wanted. Mister, he said, just read that out loud, please. The passage he indicated was the famous chapter beginning, Is the mammoth extinct? Is the ding extinct? Probably. 
and yet the aborigines of British America maintain the contrary. Probably both the mammoth and the ding are extinct, but until expeditions have penetrated and explored not only the unknown region in Alaska, but also that hidden tableland beyond the Graham Glacier and the Hudson Mountains, it will not be possible to definitely announce the total extinction of either the mammoth or the ding. When I had read it, slowly, for his benefit, he brought his hand down smartly on one knee, and nodded rapidly. "'Mister,' he said, "'that gent knows a thing or two, and don't you forget it!' Then he demanded, abruptly, how I knew he hadn't been behind the Graham Glacier. I explained. "'Shucks,' he said, "'there's a road five miles wide under that there table-land.' Mister, I ain't been in New York long. I come in her part a week ago on the Arctic Bell Whaler. I was in the Hudson Range when that there Graham Glacier bust up. What? I exclaimed. Didn't you know it? he asked. Well, maybe it ain't in the papers, but it busted all right. Blowed up by an earthquake and volcano combined. And, mister, it was awful. My, how I did run! Do you mean to tell me that some convulsion of the earth has shattered the Graham Glacier? I asked. Convulsions? Yes, and fits too, he said sulkily. The whole blamed thing dropped into a hole. And say, mister, home and mother is good enough for me now. I stared at him stupidly. Once, he said, I catched pelts for them sharps at Hudson Bay, like any yaller husky, but the things I seen under that convulsion fit, the things I seen behind the Hudson mountings, don't make me hanker arter no life on the Pirari wild, let me tell yer. I may be a mother carry chicken, but this chicken has got enough. After a long silence, I picked up his book again, and pointed at the picture of the mammoth. What color is it? I asked. Kind of red and brown, he answered promptly. It's woolly, too. Astounded, I pointed to the ding. One toad, he said quickly, makes a noise like a bell when scuttering about. Intensely excited, I laid my hand on his arm. My society will give you a thousand dollars, I said, if you pilot me inside the Hudson Table Land and show me either a mammoth or a ding. He looked me calmly in the eye. Mister, he said slowly, have you got a million for to squander on me? No, I said suspiciously. Because, he went on, it wouldn't be enough. Home and mother suits me now. He picked up his book and rose. In vain I asked his name and address. In vain I begged him to dine with me, to become my honored guest. Knit, he said shortly, and shambled off down the path. But I was not going to lose him like that. I rose and deliberately started to stalk him. It was easy. He shuffled along, pulling on his pipe, and I after him. It was growing a little dark, although the sun still reddened the tops of the maples. Afraid of losing him in the falling dusk, I once more approached him, and laid my hand upon his ragged sleeve. Look here, 
he cried, wheeling about. I want you to quit follering me. Don't I tell you money can't make me go back to the mountings? And as I attempted to speak, he suddenly tore off his cap and pointed to his head. His hair was white as snow. That's what comes of monkeying into your cursed mountings, he shouted fiercely. There's things in there what no Christian ought to see. Let me alone or I'll bust you. He shambled on, doubled fists swinging by his side. The next moment, setting my teeth obstinately, I followed him and caught him by the park gate. At my hail he whirled around with a snarl, but I grabbed him by the throat and backed him violently against the park wall. "'You invaluable ruffian,' I said. "'Now you listen to me. I live in that big stone building, and I'll give you a thousand dollars to take me behind the Graham Glacier. Think it over and call on me when you are in a pleasanter frame of mind. If you don't come by noon tomorrow, I'll go to the Graham Glacier without you.' He was attempting to kick me all the time, but I managed to avoid him. And when I had finished, I gave him a shove which almost loosened his spinal column. He went reeling out across the sidewalk, and when he had recovered his breath and his balance, he danced with displeasure, and displayed a vocabulary that astonished me. However, he kept his distance. As I turned back into the park, satisfied that he would not follow. The first person I saw was the elderly, stony-faced lady of the wisteria arbor, advancing on tiptoe. Behind her came the younger lady, with cheeks like a rose that had been rained on. Instantly it occurred to me that they had followed us, and at the same moment I knew who the stony-faced lady was. Angry but polite, I lifted my hat and saluted her, and she, probably furious at having been caught tiptoeing after me, cut me dead. The younger lady passed me with face averted, but even in the dusk I could see the tip of one little ear turn scarlet. Walking on hurriedly, I entered the administration building, and found Professor Lessard of the reptilian department preparing to leave. Don't you do it, I said sharply. I've got exciting news. I'm only going to the theater, he replied. It's a good show. Adam and Eve. There's a snake in it, you know. It's in my line. I can't help it, I said, and I told him briefly what had occurred in the arbor. But that's not all, I continued savagely. Those women followed us. And who do you think one of them turned out to be? Well, it was Professor Small of Barnard College, and I'll bet every pair of boots I own that she starts for the Graham Glacier within a week. Idiot that I was! I exclaimed, smiting my head with both hands. I never recognized her until I saw her tiptoeing and craning her neck to listen. Now she knows about the glacier. She heard every word that young ruffian said, and she'll go to the glacier if it's only to forestall me. Professor Lessard looked anxious. He knew that Miss Small, professor of natural history at Barnard College, had long desired an appointment at the Bronx Park Gardens. It was even said she had a chance of succeeding Professor Farrago as president, 
but that, of course, must have been a joke. However, she haunted the gardens, annoying the keepers by persistently poking the animals with her umbrella. On one occasion she sent us word that she desired to enter the tiger's enclosure for the purpose of making experiments in hypnotism. Professor Farrago was absent, but I took it upon myself to send back word that I feared the tigers might injure her. The miserable small boy who took my message informed her that I was afraid she might injure the tigers, and the unpleasant incident almost cost me my position. "'I am quite convinced,' said I to Professor Lessard, "'that Miss Small is perfectly capable of abusing the information she overheard, and of starting herself to explore a region that by all the laws of decency, justice, and prior claim belongs to me. Well, said Lessard, with a peculiar laugh, it's not certain whether you can go at all. Professor Farrago will authorize me, I said confidently. Professor Farrago has resigned, said Lessard. It was a bolt from a clear sky. "'Good heavens!' I blurted out. "'What will become of the rest of us, then?' "'I don't know,' he replied. "'The trustees are holding a meeting over in the administration building "'to elect a new president for us. "'It depends on the new president what becomes of us.' "'Lessard,' I said hoarsely, "'you don't suppose that they could possibly elect Miss Small as our president, do you?' He looked at me askance and bit his cigar. "'I'd be in a nice position, wouldn't I?' said I anxiously. "'The lady would probably make you walk the plank for that tiger business,' he replied. "'But I didn't do it,' I protested, with sickly eagerness. "'Besides, I explained to her.' He said nothing, and I stared at him, appalled by the possibility of reporting to Professor Small for instructions next morning. "'See here, Lessard,' I said nervously, "'I wish you would step over to the administration building and ask the trustees if I may prepare for this expedition. Will you?' He glanced at me sympathetically. It was quite natural for me to wish to secure my position before the new president was elected, especially as there was a chance of the new president being Miss Small. "'You are quite right,' he said. "'The Graham Glacier would be the safest place for you if our next president is to be the Lady of the Tigers.' And he started across the park, puffing his cigar. I sat down on the doorstep to wait for his return, not at all charmed with the prospect. It made me furious, too, to see my ambition nipped with the frost of a possible veto from Miss Small. If she is elected, thought I, there is nothing for me but to resign, to avoid the inconvenience of being shown the door. Oh, I wish I had allowed her to hypnotize the tigers! Thoughts of crime flitted through my mind. Miss Small would not remain president, or anything else very long, if she persisted in her desire for the tigers, and then when she called for help I would pretend not to hear. Aroused from criminal meditation by the return of Professor Lessard, 
I jumped up and peered into his perplexed eyes. "'They've elected a president,' he said, "'but they won't tell us who the president is until tomorrow.' "'You don't think,' I stammered. "'I don't know. But I know this. The new president sanctions the expedition to the Graham Glacier, and directs you to choose an assistant and begin preparations for four people.' Overjoyed, I seized his hand and said, Hooray! in a voice weak with emotion. The old dragon isn't elected this time, I added triumphantly. By the way, he said, who was the other dragon with her in the park this evening? I described her in a more modulated voice. Whew! observed Professor Lessard. That must be her assistant, Professor Dorothy Van Twiller. She's the prettiest blue-stocking in town. With this curious remark, my confrere followed me into my room and wrote down the list of articles I dictated to him. The list included a complete camping equipment for myself and three other men. Am I one of those other men? inquired Lessard, with an unhappy smile. Before I could reply, my door was shoved open, and a figure appeared at the threshold, cap in hand. "'What do you want?' I asked sternly. But my heart was beating high with triumph. The figure shuffled. Then came a subdued voice. "'Mister, I guess I'll go back to the Graham Glacier along with you. I'm Billy Spike, and it kinder scares me to go back to them Hudson Mountains, but somehow, mister, when you choked me and kinder walked me off my ear, why, mister, I kinder took to you like. There was absolute silence for a minute. Then he said, So if you go, I guess I'll go too, mister. For a thousand dollars? For nothing, he muttered, or what you like. All right, Billy, I said briskly. Just look over those rifles and ammunition, and see that everything's sound. He slowly lifted his tough young face, and gave me a dog-like glance. They were hard eyes, but there was gratitude in them. "'You'll get your throat slit,' whispered Lessard. "'Not while Billy's with me,' I replied cheerfully. Late that night, as I was preparing for pleasant dreams, a knock came on my door, and a telegraph messenger handed me a note, which I read, shivering in my bare feet, although the thermometer marked eighty Fahrenheit. You will immediately leave for the Hudson Mountains via Wellman Bay, Labrador, there to await further instructions. Equipment for yourself and one assistant will include following articles. Here began a list of camping utensils, scientific paraphernalia, and provisions. The steamer Penguin sails at five o'clock tomorrow morning. Kindly find yourself on board at that hour. Any excuse for not complying with these orders will be accepted as your resignation. Susan Small, President, Bronx Zoological Society. Lessard! I shouted, trembling with fury. He appeared at his door, chastely draped in pajamas, and he read the insolent letter with terrified alacrity. 
What are you going to do? Resign? he asked, much frightened. Do? I snarled, grinding my teeth. I'm going! That's what I'm going to do! But, but you can't get ready and catch that steamer, too, he stammered. He did not know me. End of chapter 6